erosion. Chapter 12 When the very animals of the forest began fleeing from his approach, then it was that for us the Wild West began. Chief Luther, Standing Bear, Sue. Unbelievably, the rain seemed to have gotten worse. Either that or Francine's sob was terrible in bad weather. Mark contemplated turning around and going back to the library a few times. He'd call the lawyers and tell them that he just couldn't make it because of the bad weather. They'd understand. If they didn't, then screw them, because no sane person could put up with all this rain. The roads were practically washing away the water flowing over them and through the ravines and past all the houses and stores he passed. He barely made out the signs, but he recognized the old building. No one was out, so he parked right in front. The water poured into the car as he got out. He pulled the Yankee cap lower over his brow and ran for the door, only to be stopped going full tilt into it. He felt ridiculous slamming into the locked door like that, but no one was around to see it anyway. A sign just behind the glass window read, closed because of rain. Mark cursed all the way back to the car. He beat the steering wheels a few times and then relaxed. It was what he had wanted in the first place, not to have to sit through a boring meeting anyway. He checked for his cell phone. He left it back at the library. He wished they'd have called or left a message with the motel clerk. But that wouldn't have done any good. He wasn't anywhere near his motel last night. He was in the library with Francine. He pulled away from the curb to head back to her, his interesting, smart, and although not stunningly beautiful like a supermodel, attractive nonetheless former high school girlfriend Francine Miller. He even found all her nerd qualities sexy. They even had sex in a library on a fold-out couch, for God's sake. An open sporting goods store looked bustling with cars, so he stopped with the intention of picking up some gear just in case the rain got worse. The electricity was bound to go out eventually. They had the fireplace but they could use flashlights and batteries if there were any left. He parked in the last spot and dodged raindrops all the way across the little parking lot. The place was alive with activity, but Mark sensed immediately that it was not just people like him ducking in to get some essentials in case the rain worsened. He noticed the proliferation of police officers in the store. He got the distinct impression that the place was being used as a makeshift command post. He stopped a mud-splattered officer as he was walking by. What's going on, he asked, and immediately he recognized the face. Mark? He shook his head. Yeah, hey, Jerry, how's it going? Jerry smiled and shook his hand. We're busy here. I see, what's going on? Oh, all the bridges have flooded out on the White River, and now all the farmers to the north can't get out of the canyon. Really? No one ever made more than one way out of those farms in all these years? Nope. And all the dirt roads to Covingdale are washed out. We can't tell, but some people reported mudslides up there. We're trying to sandbag the river to put up a bridge of some kind. 
Some farmer rode his tractor over the valley and he called us from Covingdale. He said he just about killed himself getting over, so he didn't think anyone else would make it through the same way. How many people are trapped up there? About 12 families are still there. 12? How are you? My Uncle Carlton said you were coming into town. I'm fine, Mark thought for a minute. Could I help out? Jerry looked him over. You're not dressed for it, he said. I could probably grab some jeans and rain gear here, he said. I want to help you, Jerry. Looks like you guys can use it. Jerry looked down at his own outfit. I suppose so. We can use some extra hands. Good. I just have to make two phone calls. I left my cell phone back at the um, hotel. Can I borrow? We have a phone bank set up in the back, Jerry said, thumbing behind him. He called Francine to say that he'd be pitching in any way he could see fit. She was basically trapped in the library while he had her car, so he gave her the number to the emergency phone bank and said to have them radio Jerry if she needed anything. She promised to sit tight until he returned with any supplies he could find. Electricity was thankfully still running, so she would monitor weather and emergency reports. When he hung up, he felt a sense of connection to the flow of events going on in Canyon Park. With Francine and now Jerry, he was contributing and embracing his old self, his history, as it were. Of all the things he wanted when he first decided to show up to the reading of Aunt Anne's will, this was furthest from his mind. Now that he stopped for a breath to think, it was closest to his heart. The town had done an amazing thing. It had stripped him down to his essentials. The layers of emotional calluses he built up for years were being scrubbed away. Come on, Mark, we're heading down. They need sandbaggers and rescue for some wackos trying to cross the river. Jerry intruded into his thoughts. You ready? I'm ready. Jerry handed him a stack of clothes and rain gear. You could change in my car, he said. Mark climbed into the front seat of Jerry's police cruiser after changing out of his khaki pants and button-up shirt into jeans, sweatshirt, and blue rain jacket. Thanks for digging up this stuff, he said. Appreciate you coming along to help, Jerry said. Sure, I'm glad to see you again, Mark. A wide grin was plastered on his face. He looked a little like he used to in high school. This place hasn't changed a bit. Wetter is all. Hey, how's your uncle? Is he still a cop, too? He's fine. They made him detective a few years ago. My aunt's still screwed up. Is he still drinking? Yep. He doesn't think we notice. I feel bad for them. It's like they have no direction. They just go on every day the same, like zombies. I can't imagine, Mark said, not knowing what else to say. It's been so long, but I guess you never get over a thing like that. Jason was their only kid. So is he investigating the murders, Mark asked? He wanted to change the subject. Since the lawyers and his own family weren't telling him anything, he might try to cops. Jerry looked startled. Sorry about your aunt, man. It's fine. I just want to know if they found out anything yet. The road bumped along. They were driving through some narrow trails, heading down into the valley, where the river separated the town from the outlying farms. Uncle Carlton's on top of things. No suspects, but he thinks there's a real serial killer out there. A first for Canyon Park. Jerry allowed himself a laugh, breaking the dark mood. I have my suspicions, too. Doing your own investigation? Who do you think is doing it? Anyone I know? Matter of fact, yes. Remember that red Indian kid from high school, Gary Connors? Mark nodded his head. The guy who used to hunt squirrels and rabbits and make those bags from their skins. 
Jerry banged the steering wheel. That guy, yeah, I remember that. I knew he was a freak show. You think Gary Connors killed my aunt? When I was checking out the farmers to make sure they were all right a few days ago, I ran into him. He bought old Rich Grayson's land and started growing wheat and corn on it. His wife left him. He looked like hell, and his farm was flooded. He looked like a guy who was about to snap. I never trusted that red bastard. He looked like a nut job since high school. Mark couldn't help but smile, thinking of Gary as a serial killer. It just fit too well. He was a strange guy, always wrapped tight. He'd work out all the time, too, remember? What'd we call him? Tonto? No, it was something else. Little Whitefish? What? No. It was like an Indian chief. A real person, because he was so into working out and acting mean and macho. Oh, yeah. It was Pocahontas. Right. It was pretty cruel of us, wasn't it? Mark got that twinge in his belly like butterflies that told him something was wrong. It was guilt. The little thing that he always said to himself was his own body telling him that he was about to do something wrong. He also called it his pressure valve. It would release only when he steered away from the course that was making him feel that way. He often felt it when reviewing contracts or presenting them. Some might call it gut instinct. Do you really think that he's the killer, Jerry? I mean, looking back, he had a pretty hard life, with his parents dying when he was a kid and everything. Jerry gave him a look. Like you? Come on, Mark. That'd mean you'd have as much chance as being fucked up as he is. He was different. He was on that reservation. Right, and it was those drunken Indians he hung out with that made him crazy, not us. Jerry was angry as he pointed to himself. We just saw how it was, Mark. Don't beat yourself up over it. I still feel guilty. Still doesn't give him the right to go around killing people. Those guys screw everything up. You ever see one of them hold down a job? He remembered Daniel Smallpaw from the lawyer's office. He also remembered some Oneida who worked as managers at the convenience stores and factories. You sure he's the guy? I'm sure, but he's stuck on the other side of that river in his farm, so I wouldn't worry about anyone else dying too soon. They pulled out of the bumpy road to the White River. Emergency vehicles were everywhere, along with locals running sandbags and equipment in all kinds of pickup trucks and sport utility vehicles. The place buzzed. From where they were, he could see the embankment rise on the opposite side. Water raged by, looking at once pure and natural and then dirty and threatening. It was raining hard, and Mark saw how the cliffs fed the river by tipping the flat plains, soaked with water, down into the gorge. Rivlets poured down the face. A bicycle was stuck on an outcropping. It was just minutes before the rock eroded from underneath, sending the child's toy splashing into the river. Gone forever, somewhere miles away. They got out of the truck and lugged whatever gear Jerry had taken from the sporting goods store. There was a steep drop to the water. Men and women were all up and down the river, busy at sandbagging, where they could, while others stacked logs. Up the river there were thick ropes strung to either side, tied high up in the trees that just stood over the water. What's that, Mark asked, as they made their way to a fire truck parked in the woods. We were helping some people over the river with those ropes. We got harnesses for mountain climbing from the store and just hooked them up. A couple of guys are a part of a county-wide club, so they're helping us bring folks across. Jerry elbowed him and smiled. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, he nodded. Pretty cool. Put this on. Jerry handed him a yellow life vest. Mark immediately secured the jacket around his chest. 
It felt silly until he noticed that almost everyone else was wearing one, too. If you fall in, the rapids will probably drown you, Jerry said, but this gives you a fighting chance. Mark recognized Jerry's Uncle Carlton right away as they approached the vehicle. They had two large SUVs parked ass-to-ass with a tarp draped between. Carlton was messing with something on the open tailgate of one of them. Uncle Carl? Jerry called. The rain and the current made it hard to hear anything, and they had to yell to be heard. Hey, Uncle Carl. Hey, Uncle Carl, you remember Mark, right? The big gray-haired man turned to Mark and smiled. He wore goggles and a giant windbreaker. He guessed that underneath was his life jacket. Hey, Mark Lalo, I heard you were here. They shook hands. Sorry about your aunt. Thanks. How are you? It was a funny question. It seemed so casual amid the swirl of activity, but Carlton seemed to be generally interested. How's New York? Good, I'm part of a law practice there. Great! Carlton hit his shoulder hard. The man had aged significantly, but his strength hadn't waned one bit. You come down for the show? Mark gingerly shrugged, feeling suddenly like a tourist. I'm here to pitch in. We could use all the help we can get. There's still some more family stuck on the other side. Bob Hoffman is one of the mountain climbers who helped us rig this up here. He pointed to the five ropes suspended over the river. It's working beautifully, but with the wind and rain increasing, I'm not sure for how long, especially if the river overtakes the banks. What can I do? Mark tried to shield the rain from his eyes with his hands. Relieve one of my men waiting for Bob to get back. No offense, but you could babysit the ropes while I use officers elsewhere. I've just got a call on the radio. A tractor trailer overturned on Route 24. There's something like 20 cars piled up behind it. It's blocking the whole fucking road. Shit! Jerry pumped his fist. So we're trapped in town now? Yep, Carlton said, as if he'd resolved himself to the whole mess a long time ago. Between the river and Route 24, we're stranded except by off-road, and that's pretty treacherous now with the mud. More likely you'll get stuck before you go too far, especially in the valley here. What are we going to do, Mark asked. Whatever we can. Listen, I appreciate you helping me out here. My guys need a break. Carlton hit his shoulder again and then turned to Jerry. Take him over and give him Danny's post, all right? They walked to the ropes and relieved an especially grateful policeman. Jerry told him to wait there until someone came over the ridge on the other side. If they did, all Mark had to do was help catch the person sent over the rope, whatever that meant. He waited in the rain. It dripped down through his gear and invaded his clothing underneath. It wasn't until that moment that he realized just how absurd the situation had become. There he was, standing on the edge of a raging river, in a rainstorm that had lasted over a month, rescuing farm families from being cut off from civilization, all while he was supposed to be attending the reading of his murdered aunt's will. Of course, there was also the matter of her crazed killer still on the loose. For some reason, that seemed like a minor matter, stressing the absurdity of it all. Across the river was a steep incline of mud and bare shrubs. Everything that had been growing on the other side was washed away in the deluge. Canyon Park was dying. The people were dying. The land was dying. The soul of his hometown was eroding into the waters. He couldn't help but wonder if some divine force called him there to stand vigil by the deathbed of his hometown. Was this the typical story? The prodigal son returns, but not in time to save his home? That, too, was preposterous. 
especially since he didn't even know what the word prodigal really meant. He wasn't even sure if he believed in God. A thud broke his thoughts as something slammed into him. He found himself struggling on the muddy ground. The coldness oozed under his jacket waist and into his sleeves. Someone yanked him to his feet. Mark saw immediately what had happened. While daydreaming, the officer on the other side of the river had sent someone sliding across the rope. He forgot to pay attention. Sorry, man, a teenage boy said. The officer said you were ready. Are you all right, Mark asked, brushing the mud off. He held the shackle at the end of the rope in his hand. It had slipped off the assembly at his side of the river. I'm good. He measured up the kid. He was young, about 15. He looked scared, but amused by what had happened. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. An emergency worker took the boy away, and the officer on the other side waved to him. He waved back to say he was all right, and he'd do better next time. He looked around for help tying back the rope when screams came from upriver, shouting for attention. A woman was thrashing in the water, sweeping fast downstream right toward him. Three feet below him, the river had cut a trench where it had been a soft grade to the edge. Every possibility raced through his mind. Someone would rescue her. She'd eventually just stop when she bumped up against the edge. She could swim in the water. Is this a joke? He realized it wasn't going to end well. She was going to get tired fighting the current and drown, and he was going to witness it all. In the surrealism of it all, he did the thing that he'd last expect to do. He wasn't acting on his own, but was guided from without. Wrapping the rope around his waist, Mark shackled the end to his belt and plunged into the river. Hey! He felt the intense spray on his face as he fought the rushing current. The rope tightened on his waist, but he fought against it. It was a bad idea. He couldn't see anything, and now he'd only put himself in danger, too. He turned around, confused. He didn't know which way to face upriver to see the woman, even if the spray weren't engulfing his head. He let the current pull him along. He said a secret prayer, thanking God that Jerry gave him that life vest. He banged up against something hard. It gave him a chance to rest as the water pinned him in its force. At least he didn't have to fight the current. The thing that stopped him was a large root, a tree trunk. He couldn't tell which. He thought if he could just get around to the other side, he could see if the woman was still there. The current threatened to drag him away from the trunk if he tried to move around it to the far side, where the current flowed around the tree. He felt around blind and found a protrusion. Crooking his arm over it, he dragged himself up over the spray. There she was, struggling against the current, but luckily headed right for him and his little oasis in the river. Mark managed to get a little slack off the rope and hooked it around the protrusion. He let a little loose so he could push off the tree to grab the woman as she passed. He had to time it right, and he didn't know if he had the strength to even push himself far enough off. He had this one chance, or this effort was just another distraction for the rescue workers. Strangely, it occurred to him how embarrassed he'd be having to be rescued from this stunt if it didn't work. It had to work, if nothing else, to save the girl and save face in front of all those emergency workers. The woman's dark form was almost to him. He took a deep breath and pushed off the tree, landing directly on top of her. He wrapped both arms around her body and held on for life. Water filled his sinuses. Water filled his throat. The pain seared his brain, but he hung on to her with every bit of strength he had. We'll die together, he thought. There was no roar of the river. 
just the deep tones and gurgling of the density of sound underwater. It was dark and cold. If he was going to die, he hoped it was all true about God and the heavens and Jesus Christ, the Savior on the throne. He wanted to see his parents again. In the cold, wet, painful water, he was finding something of peace. In his busy life in Manhattan, death was always a fringe concern. It happened all around him, but it never seemed to touch him directly. Now there was nothing but death around him, and his life was at a stop. If death came, though, he wanted to see the clear sky again and warm sun on his body. He never missed a big open sky as much as he did at that moment. Wouldn't be so bad if that's how it really was to die, he thought. Air rushed into his lungs, and he threw up water to displace it. His body convulsed in fits of coughing and retching. When his body had expelled all the water it had taken inside, he rolled over and looked up to see the gray sky. Still raining. Next to him was a woman covered in a burlap blanket to her neck. He feared that death was next to him, too. She's alive, someone said. Mark saw that she was breathing. Someone turned him over. It was the officer from the other side of the river. You are one brave asshole, he said. Let's get you back across. by Lon S. Cohen. To find out more, please visit www.coincide.blogspot.com. This patio book is a production of Zilco Studios. This <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>